Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Barbara Ridpath, and I am director of St. Paul's Institute at St. Paul's Cathedral. I am delighted to be moderating this evening's debate on the motion, Should Economic Growth Be the Policy? It is between Andy Haldane, Chief Economist of the Bank of England and Executive Director, Monetary Analysis, and Andrew Lillico, Executive Director and Principal of Europe Economics and Chairman of the IEA's Shadow Monetary Policy Committee. I am tempted to call it the Battle of the Andrews, if anybody else has thought of that yet. Before we begin, I would particularly like to thank our host here at St. Mary LeBeau, the Reverend George Bush, and our co-sponsors, Just Share. Just Share is a coalition of churches and charities committed to global development and social justice based here at St. Mary LeBeau. There is more about them in your program, and I heartily encourage you to find out more about what they're up to. Our subject this evening is an important and timely one. In a measurement system that has always had trouble measuring services, the Office of National Statistics announced in May of this year that GDP will in future incorporate prostitution and vice. Andy Haldane himself pointed out in a recent speech that volunteerism is nowhere captured, nor is housework, says the working mom, unless you pay someone else to do it, as neither is attributed to a, a, a measurable monetary value. The deleterious effects of some action on pollution and climate change also have no means of being captured in the data. Now, to be fair, Simon Kuznets, the US inventor of the notion, recognized it was flawed from the outset. What we cannot know is whether he ever anticipated just how widely used it would be as a measure of growth and production. Nor did he necessarily foresee the perverse consequences that might entail, given Goodhart's law, that any observed statistical regularity will tend to collapse once pressure is placed on it for control purposes. There's also a wonderful quote attributed to can be counted and not everything that, be, can, that is counted counts. However, in today's world, many of you will know that if you can't measure it, it can't matter. Nonetheless, focus on GDP can send policymakers in the wrong direction. The solution to some was the introduction of indices of well-being. And they may be mentioned tonight, so I won't spend more time on them. In this context, we'll see what our speakers have to say. We've been relatively generous with them. Rather than asking them to argue for or against GDP itself, we have asked them to argue for or against economic growth as the primary objective of economic policy. Our format is a very traditional debate, taking advantage of the two pulpits here at St. Mary Le Beau. Andrew Lillico will speak first, arguing for the motion. Andy Haldane will speak second, arguing against. Each will have 10 minutes, and I will be brutal at cutting off remarks after that point to ensure we get time for five minutes for each of the speakers to respond to the other, as well as to permit time for questions from the audience. After questions, each speaker will have a two-minute summing up, and then I will look for a show of hands for and against the motion to determine the victor. For the motion, Andrew Lillico. Uh, I, I suspect that I could argue either side of this particular debate. Um, I mean, there are a variety of possible goals for policies, 
government policies of all sorts. Uh, one could pursue economic growth, um, one could pursue limited instability, for example, having a low level of peak unemployment in recessions, you could pursue the maximization of wealth as opposed to um, the uh, growth of income. Uh, one could pursue fairness, regional solidarity, military dominance, scientific advancements. There are many different things that one might pursue. Uh, and to some extent, governments ought to pursue all of these things. But my task is to defend the claim that the primary, not the only, but the primary goal of economic policy should be economic growth. And so I'll get to it. I shall argue for this for five main reasons. My five main reasons will be prosperity, security and geopolitical influence, duty, a do-no-harm principle, and unseen moral consequences. So the first reason is prosperity. Over the long term, economic growth is almost everything that matters in economic terms. It makes all the difference. Consider an economy growing at half a percent a year, say as Portugal's has done in the 15 years since it joined the euro, um, versus one growing at 2.5% a year, the traditional UK growth rate. And let's suppose that they started at the same level of GDP. After 20 years, the faster growing economy will be half as large again as the slower growing one. After 36 years, it will be twice as big. Those small differences in growth turn over time into enormous differences in prosperity. Those, that prosperity is more money to spend, more resources to devote for healthcare, education, guns, sports events, technology, support for the poor, or whatever other projects you may have. So it's all very nice having lots of other goals in the short term, but over the longer term, overwhelmingly the thing that determines what you can do is how fast as an economy you grow. Next, the next second of my five key principles is that of security and geopolitical influence. A richer country will, other things being equal, be a safer country. It will be more able to defend itself militarily. It will be more able to adapt to natural disasters or economic changes or things like climate change. Its citizens will be more able to cope with sudden illness or divorce or the arrival of an unexpected baby. Wealth shields. Its governments, the governments of a richer country, will be less likely to be unable to service their debts with all the attendant misery that we've seen in recent years can be associated with that. Such security provides the bedrock for the projection of values and philanthropy to others, both at the level of the individual citizens being more wealthy and also at the level of the government as a whole. Our country will collectively be able to stand up against oppression and combat want and ignorance abroad better if it is richer. The philanthropy of our citizens will be more munificent, our governments and our military powers will be greater, our influence in the world and our ability to project our values onto others will be greater as well. The third of my five principles is duty. So there are various things, there are various things that governments can do to affect the rate of growth of an economy, and some of which I'll mention in a moment, but the most important ways governments enhance economic growth are through the delivery of rulers upon their core duties. The maintenance of peace, the protection of property and contract rights, 
the freedom to trade, the facilitation of diversity of ideas and thus creativity, the combating of vested interests such as monopoly or simony, the selling of offices or bribery and corruption. These are the most important promoters of growth. Many countries around the world fail to deliver on these core duties of rulers. The countries that, if you look around the world and you find the countries where growth is poorest over any length of time, you can bet your bottom dollar those are going to be the countries where the rulers fail upon these core duties. Peace is not maintained. Property rights are not secure. The government oppresses its citizens. There is corruption in the ruling elites. The core ethical duties of governments deliver most upon growth. So if growth is fastest, then you're going to be delivering in these ways best. The next principle, though, is another one. It is what I would call the do-no-harm principle. It's often suggested in certain sorts, people who know a little bit about uh, economics sometimes uh, uh, fall into the thought that um, economic policy can't affect growth over the long term. They have the idea that actually you can't um, it makes no difference what sorts of economic policies that they have, that modern economics teaches that idea. It doesn't teach any such thing, in fact. What it teaches is that through things like running large deficits or uh, running very loose monetary policy, you can't make economies grow faster over the long term. It doesn't teach that you can't make them grow slower. If your management of your economy is very inept, if you are hopeless at the, at the keeping of low and stable inflation, if you manage to run extremely high levels of government spending or irresponsible levels of debts, you will damage your growth. The do-no-harm principle says that if your economy is growing faster, it is likely that you are failing to damage it through your policy. The fifth of my principle is, principles is what I call the unseen moral consequences. And um, this one's a little bit more subtle and I think quite important because it's one of the ones which is most ignored by policymakers. Um, when we face, when we face a difficult economic situation, it's often the case that policymakers will um, quite correctly want to assist those who have made mistakes in the run-up to the rising of some sort of economic crisis, a recession or something of that sort. So those who have, for example, borrowed too much um, for mortgages for their houses may be bailed out in some sense by the government. So the government might, for example, run, um, have very low interest rate policies to stop house prices from falling, or it might have various subsidies, tax breaks, all kinds of efforts um, to prevent house prices from falling and people from being pressed out of their homes, to prevent people from uh, getting into negative equity, to prevent people from defaulting on loans that they've already taken on. And that's all very well. Right? That's, that's fine. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Uh, it's a necessary thing in many cases, but it's also a virtuous thing in some cases because it's good to help those who've got into difficulty. But that's not an obligation or, a, um, or even a, a morally available alternative indefinitely. It's one thing to say, I'm going to assist the imprudent at the expense of the prudent for a short time. So, of course, the, those who are more prudent, for example, uh, might lose out if you do this. If you stop house prices from falling, then those who were renting or those who saved up instead of committing to excessive mortgages in some way, those who just delayed purchasing a new house, they miss out on the opportunity to buy a larger property or buy a property at all because you've 
meant you've stopped house prices from falling. We see a lot of discussion of that in the, in the press in recent years with the exclusion of young people and the affordability question. But if you um, bail out the imprudent indefinitely, that over time has very real consequences for the prudent. It means that those people who had done the right thing in the run-up to the crisis then lose out. So they live in a smaller house while their children are growing up. So children being seven, you go to them being eight and a half and they live in a slightly smaller house, that's one thing. But if you keep that policy in place for seven years, 10 years, then it means that children go all through their formative years in a rental accommodation or a smaller accommodation than they could have afforded. Or in some other contexts, you have people go through a large portion of their working life with very low returns on their savings when they ought to have had higher returns on their savings so that they then are, um, get into difficulty when they finally come to retire. The policy which is morally defensible in the short term will not be morally defensible over the longer term because it harms the prudent at the expense of the imprudent. But crucially, as well as having that moral consequence, one of the ways that you see that as a policymaker is in low growth. You don't see, you're unlikely to see in the same way as you see the visible consequences of people who are um, out on the streets when they lose their jobs, the unemployment queues, the, uh, the queues at the banks when the banks fail, all of those kind of very visible policies, you tend to get unseen consequences for many of these things which arise as moral dilemmas over the longer term. But one way in which you do see it is that your growth will be slow to the extent that you favor the imprudent and keep them in place over the imprudent. So, I'm just about, oh, I never saw my card. I'm, I'm just on my final sentence. So if you, if you do that, I never saw the card. I was waiting to see a card. Um, so uh, I was going to say, so it, it, one, of the, one of the points here is that economic growth then gives you that signal that tells you whether you're getting the thing wrong over the longer term. Thank you. Thank you. Have no uh, glasses. <laughs> thank you, Barbara, and even everyone. Thanks for coming along. Um, very nice to be here, actually. Um, I uh, about five years ago set up a, a little charity, uh, which is basically getting economists to volunteer to work with charities on measuring their impact. Uh, and that charity was founded actually in the crypt of this church over the course of a year, which George knows about. So it's, it's lovely to be coming back and debating this important issue with, with Andrew, who makes a very compelling case, Andrew, I have to say, but not compelling enough. Um, um, so I want to first start by saying nothing I'll say tonight will imply that economic growth and GDP are not important for all the reasons that Andrew set out incredibly clearly and uh, compellingly. Of course it is. I've spent all afternoon with the Office of National Statistics discussing revisions to GDP. <laughs> I can't tell you how fascinating uh, that was. So my day job is doing this. Um, so of course I think it's important. Um, but just because it's important doesn't mean it's the most important thing or that we shouldn't look beyond to other things that are equally, and in some cases, even more important than growth, than GDP. 
And let me illustrate that by making just, just three points on why growth GDP might give us a, at best partial, at worst misleading read on what really matters. What really matters to society, what really matters to policymakers uh, like me. So the first point I'd make is um, even on its own terms, GDP gives us a very wonky read on the goods and services that an economy, a society creates. Why do I say that? Because GDP only measures those things for which there is an explicit monetary value that are exchanged in markets with prices. In other words, it misses out a whole host of things that most of us would recognize as being, as creating value for an economy, for a society. Andrew mentioned, and Barbara mentioned some of them. Childcare, adult care, any job done around the house is plainly the creation of a good or a service. It's creating value. What weight is that value given in the national accounts? It's a weight of a very round number uh, of zero. That feels a bit on the low side to me. Um, Barbara mentioned volunteering as, as one example. You know, what weight does volunteering activity um, attach in the GDP statistics? It, it also has a weight of, of zero. Yet this is an activity that absorbs 15 million people in this country. It employs almost as many people, employs, as the NHS. I think most of us would think of volunteering as creating a whole lot of value, both economic and social and moral. Yet all of that were the numbers of volunteers to double tomorrow from 15 million to 30 million. That would still score zero from an economic growth perspective. That doesn't sound right to me as a way of keeping score, even when taking GDP at its face value as measuring the value of goods and services in society. My second point um, in a similar theme uh, is that the mere average level of growth in an economy, in a society, can often tell us very little about the welfare of its citizens. Because often what matters as much or more is the distribution of that income and wealth across society. And in fairness, this point has long been recognized. So the, the architect of the GDP statistics, Simon Kuznets, which Barbara mentioned, back in, in the first report on GDP to Congress in 1934, he said economic welfare cannot be adequately measured unless the personal distribution of income is known. And of course, that is self-evidently the case. Imagine, imagine that today we all earned exactly the same amount. We all earned, let's say, 50,000 pounds per year. And then tomorrow, the government forced half of the people in this country to give away 49,000 pounds of their income, 
to the other half. Okay. The GDP numbers would tell you the society is equally well off today and tomorrow. But I think it's pretty obvious to anyone that were you to widen the distribution of income in that way, it cannot but have a very damaging impact on societal welfare. And that example I gave you, of course it was hypothetical. Of course it was hypothetical. But if when we look at the trends in the distribution of income across countries, across societies, we see a shift not as dramatic as that, but nonetheless discernible. So between 1975 and 2007, of all the growth in the US economy, fully half of it accrued to the top 1%. Fully half of that accrued to the top 1%. Here in the UK, the income share of that top 1% has doubled since 1980. The five richest households here in the UK have as much wealth as the bottom 20% of the population. The top 1% of wealth accounts for fully 30%, a third of the wealth of the economy as a whole. These trends have doubtless had an impact on societal welfare. They've also, interestingly, had an impact directly on growth. Because the IMF's latest evidence makes very clear that this is not just a social welfare, a moral issue. Even on its own terms, inequality is a growth killer. So even if you accepted the metric of growth in GDP, its distribution really matters. And of course, and this is my third point, we all know in our heart of hearts that growth isn't all that matters. That the monetary amount that we earn or that we spend is the most imperfect of proxies of what really counts. And we know that because we now have a very extensive literature which has studied both across people and across countries, what is it that matters to people's well-being, to their satisfaction, to their happiness? And what shows up there is very revealing. Income is well down the scale. What ranks much higher on that list are things like relationships. They are things like security. They are things like education and the environment. They are things like health, both physical and mental. And the good news is that although that might sound a somewhat fluffier wish list than GDP, statisticians and policymakers have taken that message to heart. And we have started now to construct indices of broader well-being that take into account these factors. And that must, that must I think, be a step in the right direction. I have the yellow card, which means I should wind up, so I will. GDP had its time and had its place. It has served a fantastically important role for 81 years and counting, and will continue 
to play an important role. But what people, what society is telling us is that there is more to life than that. There are other things, both subtler and broader, that matter more. And we, as society, and as policymakers, therefore need to listen to that message and make a change. Thank you. Thank you very much to both the Andrews. Uh, Andrew Lillico will now have five minutes to respond. I'm very glad that I didn't... Um I wasn't uh, driven into defending any specific measure of GDP, and I thought that Andrew made a number of good points, which I shall uh, come to to some extent. But at a, at a high level, I think that the, it's, the, the main things that I would say are the following. I'm not claiming, and I don't think anybody should claim, that economic growth is the only thing that counts. I believe I gave you a list at the start of my own uh, remarks of a various other things that might count as well. Um, but I do think that... Okay. Uh, policymakers should have a certain humility. I think that policymakers, government policy in particular, policymakers shouldn't believe that it's their job to try to solve every problem or address every issue in the world. And I don't think that they should imagine that every policy should be used to solve every problem. So the question before us was what it should be the prime goal of economic policy. So perhaps it might be worth exploring a little bit about what one might mean by economic policy. So I had understood by economic policy um, things such as monetary policy, so the Bank of England, uh, the interest rates, quantitative easing, the management of the exchange rate and so on. Um, uh, fiscal policy, so how much uh, debt there is, the government uh, accumulates, how much deficits it runs, the levels of spending and tax, and the mix of spending and tax, and perhaps we might include supply-side policies, um, benefits policies, labour market reforms, things of that sort. We might even chuck in competition policies of various sorts in there. Um, in general, I think that it's best if those sorts of policies, at least I'm going to argue for today, since that's my task, um, that those sorts of policies should be focused upon at least primarily economic growth. You shouldn't imagine it's the job, for example, of economic policy to make everybody more moral. It's not the job of economic policy to make everybody volunteer to do more things. It's not the job of economic policy to encourage people to marry or to look after their children until, uh, well, things of this sort. So, of course, Many other things are very important, right? uh, and it, it, of course, there are many other things that are affected by various government policies. But I tend to be of the view that you, one should think of uh, policies as sitting to some extent in silos. Now, I'm not going to go quite so far as to say that economic policy in general is somewhat like, say, interest rate policy, where you would say that the main goal would be to control inflation and other kinds of things, such as management of economic growth and so on, uh, are uh, in the game, but uh, secondary. But I would think that there was something of that analogy here. The primary goal of economic policy should be the promotion of growth, and other kinds of things should be done to the extent that they are compatible with growth. Once you start to think that the primary goal of economic policy is the promotion of family solidarity or things of that sort, I think you will get rapidly sucked down the path of acting in quite growth-destructive ways. Be humble with your policymaking, focus on the things that you can do and can have some control over, and um, use other kinds of instruments to deal with other kinds of things, 
and leave certain kinds of things, which you can't control, um, to be left by themselves. Um, I think I might just stop there since I overran the previous time and pinch some time then. <laughs> Maybe just um, let me just try to pick up the, the first point that, that Andrew made in his introductory remarks, which is um, uh, prosperity and, and, and whether whether more is is always better in a, in a, from a growth perspective. Um, because I don't doubt, and, 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 and the evidence from across countries is, is very clear on this, that um, that growth, levels of income, really matter to people's happiness, their degree of satisfaction with their lot. Uh, that should be a very unsurprising conclusion because for many countries, through large swathes of history, they individually or they collectively within their country or society were earning too little to make ends meet. They were not, if you like, earning enough to get even the basics in life be it food or water or shelter or support of various kinds. What's very clear uh, when you look at the evidence across different countries is that there comes a point, a level of income, at which that begins to die out. Those, those effects begin to dissipate. In actual fact, that curve not only flattens out, but might even begin to bend backwards. In other words, ever higher levels of income, measured income, growth, don't appear to may have much of an impact on people's sense of well-being or satisfaction. And the effect may even be negative. So what I conclude from that uh, is that, of course, growth and GDP had its place, had its place in history. It doesn't mean it's unimportant, but it does mean that as societies progress, they look towards a broader set of metrics for what it is that really counts. And while it is the case that, of course, that, that runs some policy risk, of course there's some risk of policymakers getting it wrong, of interfering in ways that don't help, of trying the best, but that not working out. But that's true of every sphere of public life. It's certainly true of the quest for growth as well, that we've often got it wrong. The important thing, I think, for us for policymakers is to tune in as best we can to what it is that matters most. And whereas once that may have been GDP, today the scales have changed for a great many countries including a great many Western countries. And as that changes, so too must our economic policy frameworks. Let me stop there. Thank you to both of you. Um, we're pleased now to be able to do a question and answer period before we have to make our own minds up on this. We have a roving mic, and I will take questions in groups, if you would like to say who you are, that would be helpful. If you would like to address it to a specific speaker, you're free to do that as well. 
Um, there are some subjects um, which are extremely topical or sensitive, which one or both of our speakers may choose to ignore, um, and we are giving them that prerogative. There's a question here, over here, and then there. Oops. <laughs> Just wait for the microphone to get to you because the sound here is difficult. Thank you. Nicholas Beale. I spend quite a lot of time in China, and some of these issues are very sharp. Um, sorry. I spend quite a lot of time in China, and some of these issues are very sharp. A lot of the pollution that's causing a great deal of public concern seems to be driven by provincial politicians having GDP targets. But I note that the point under discussion is not whether GDP growth should be the sole or main gate goal of economic policy, but economic growth. And is there in fact a consensus between both speakers that economic growth isn't simply a matter of GDP growth, but you need to think about a wider set of indicators broadly along the lines that Andy H was suggesting? Can you pass that back to the row behind you where someone wanted to speak? <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Stephen Nishal, um, curate at Sidcup in Kent. Um, I want to challenge Andrew and his notion of prudence because um, although he's in good ancient theological um, company, um, who, who does the responsibility for prudence really belong to? Because to be really prudent, you have to be free from strong external influences in full uh, assurance of the facts and face a stable future. All those things have been wiped out uh, in the course of my lifetime. Um, we have, uh, I mean, anybody who was alive in the 80s remembers the relentless, uh, what a good thing it was basically to spend money and getting debt to support the economy. That was a big message which left me agog at the time. Um, in our own time, the sort of um, factors which allow people to plan for the future in terms of job security, stability of contracts, long-term contracts, um, pensions, have all been completely undermined. So. Who is really responsible for the risk-taking? The people who enter into financial contracts in good faith and then find their jobs are wiped out underneath them? Or the um, argument that uh, economic growth at all costs is, is well worth the effort? Thank you. Let's tackle those two and then we'll take another bunch because they're so different. Andrew, who would like to go first? So as to avoid thunderous agreement between us, uh, which, is, which would certainly be um, tempting, um, uh, I, I, think that, I think perhaps that we should understand the notion of economic growth as relating to those matters which are priced, as Andy said. So, so as, because of course one could say, one could define all economic activity as those things which promote welfare. And then we would have, then the question of the promotion of growth would be the promotion of um, the growth in welfare. And uh, I, then don't, I think we probably both agree that if you were promoting welfare, then you were doing the same thing. So let's make, it, let's make our position be different by saying that what I'm saying is that it's the, the job of economic policy, those things which relate to transactions, um, to economic activity, the job of that management of that is to maximize the output of such transactions. Of course, other people may choose to do different kinds of things, but that, that's the job of that sort of policy. I'll do, I will, well, some about it, I might as well do the other one. Um, the, I would say that, that um, prudence is a form of wisdom. Um, it's the wise response to the nature of the risks that you face. It doesn't assume 
for you to be prudent that you face only low risks. You, there may be prudent decisions to be made in the context of great volatility and considerable uncertainty. We may face a world which is more uncertain these days than in the past. In many ways, the uncertainty is a reflection of our much greater prosperity and choice. We have more jobs partly because people want more jobs. We have more jobs partly because people live longer. We have more jobs partly because technology changes in various ways and there are new cool things that everybody wants to buy and there are new jobs that people want to do and there are new places that people go. People travel much more than in the past. The very uncertainty and instability in people's lives that you identify is actually for most people a great boon. The thing that I would say though is that in respect of the, your question about lending and borrowing, one has to make prudent decisions of what to borrow, but also prudent decisions of what to lend. And I would say that both parties have significant duties in that respect. Good. Andy, would you like to reply? Sorry, picking up Nicholas's point. Um, and I think China is a fascinating case study for, for all the reasons you give of uh, how a policy uh, cannot live its usefulness. Um, because as you know well, being a China expert, um, they have had, uh, and indeed still do have, a, a set of policies for which the lodestar has very clearly been economic growth. You're pinned down to the decimal place. Um, and for all the reasons that Andrew articulated at the beginning, that has led to a transformation, not just economic, but, but social as well, in that country. But I think even in China, as you alluded to, Nicholas, we have seen a very distinct shifting of attitudes over the last 12 months, I would say. Perhaps longer, perhaps longer. Certainly, we've seen uh, a reorientation of policy over the last 12 months to recognize not, some of the broad, not just some of the broader objectives of policy, but also some of the economic and social bads that a single-minded pursuit of growth might generate, of which the most obvious is pollution and uh, the environment. And the, the determination with which they have seen that issue and grasped it over the last 12 months, I think is an object lesson to all countries globally. Having been towards, if not at, the back of the pack when it comes to issues of pollution and climate change. China, it seems to me, within the course of a year or two, has springboarded itself to towards the front of that pack. It's not that economic growth has become unimportant, but there has been an explicit recognition of other things. And that, in essence, uh, and if that is true of China today, given its levels of income per head, it must be true to an even greater extent of the Western democracies who start in a better place to begin with. Could I have some more questions? There's one at the front. Do something, and then this one back there. This is a question. <laughs> this is a question for Andy Haldane. You said that it was a problem with uh, far too much of a GDP accumulating to the wealthiest people, with billionaires becoming multi-billionaires. But if 
I can't afford a telephone in my house and have when my wife gets pregnant to go down the street to a public call box, to move from that to being able to afford my own telephone in my own house, indeed my own mobile phone, surely that is wonderful, even if you get 10 private jets in the process. Surely what matters is I'm lifted out of poverty, not whether you are lifted into luxury. Do you want to take that and then we'll do another? All right, let's do another batch. There was one in the back, and I think there are a couple back there. If we do two back there. Thank you. Uh, David Murray from Wallington. Um, I just... Close to my mouth, right, thank you. I do take issue with the idea that the, pur that the purpose of economic policy should be growth. I think it should be the common good long term. So that's my first point. My second point is that I'm amazed that this <clears throat> debate would not immediately say that there's no way that on a finite planet with finite resources that we can keep on going for growth. We must actually stop going for growth. We must move towards a steady state economy. And just in front of you. There is one just in front, I think. Jan-Peter Onstwerder with Long Finance. A question for both speakers. Um, the argument for making growth in aggregate GDP the primary objective of economic policy seems to hinge on the fact that that in turn enables all sorts of good things, healthcare and education and housing and security, etc. But isn't it true that it is always easier for a wealthy person to generate more wealth than for a poor person? A wealthy person has the opportunity to buy better education, to make investments that are not open to those who don't have much capital to invest, etc. And that therefore, by definition, if your objective is aggregate GDP growth, by definition, you create more and more inequality, and therefore more and more of the wealth will accrue to the very few, so that those good things that should come from GDP growth in the long run can never be realized? Somebody's been reading their Piketty. <laughs> um, do you want to take it first this time? To pick up perhaps the, um, maybe the, the first and the, and, and the third question, because I think they have a join. Um, I mean, the, these arguments long precede um, Piketty. Uh, Amartya Sen was making these points about what really matters in society uh, many decades ago. And to, um, to condense the Sen arguments into a, along a couple of dimensions, um, you know, freedom and opportunity for most people are the thing that matters most. And uh, to take the second of those, although it is the case that in an absolute sense, people's living standards have improved beyond recognition over the course of the last generation or two generations, no, no question uh, about that. Uh, is the same true of their opportunities? Um, to what extent is it the case that uh, one's income is a key driver of the opportunity to get properly educated, whether at school or in higher education? When you look uh, to America, where the widening of in income distributions has been greatest, uh, what's accompanied that has been relatively little, if any, progress 
in the ability of certain cohorts of society to move through the income ranks. They do not have that opportunity for financial reasons. They can't afford the education. They can't afford to invest in themselves. And there's a subtler effect here. Um, and some recent research I've been, been reading um, brought this home to me very dramatically. Because um, it's not just that in the financial sense you might not be able to afford a decent education in a world of tuition fees. Being poor also taxes the mind. Worrying about money absorbs your cognitive energy and detracts from your capacity to do the other things, such as to invest in your own education, or indeed to invest in your own family or relationships. So, and, and, and this very interesting study did the following. I've got, I've got 30 seconds. I've got time. Um, take two people. IQ test them. Uh, they're equal. One is rich, one is poor. OK. They're of equal intelligence. Then pose to both of those people a question. Ask them to contemplate not to experience, just to contemplate a loss, a loss of money. A loss that would be material for the poor person, but largely immaterial to the rich one. The mere act of asking a poor person to contemplate a monetary loss reduces their measured IQ by between 13 and 14 points. So someone who will, in a true sense, have measured of average intelligence, will measure in the bottom quartile, purely by dint of being poor, and that taxing their cognitive capacity in a way that detracts from their ability to function. It's effects like this, both direct and indirect, which entrench a lack of opportunity. And in many Western democracies, we have seen that entrenched lack of opportunity, which is why those, those features matter every bit as much as growth across the average. Andrew Lillico. I have to use, I should start using initials or something. <laughs> um, very well, so there's a few things that I'd like to say here. So first of all, I'd like to say that um, there is quite a considerable danger uh, if one when one discusses, although I think it's correct to claim, as I said at the start, that there are other things than economic growth that matter to some extent, I do think that there is a considerable danger of scoffing at economic growth such that one idolizes the comfortable affluence of the present. Um, it's uh, the kind of thought that, oh, we needn't worry too much about economic growth, isn't a thought that um, billions of people in the world today would recognize. There are people who are very poor they care a lot whether they get richer. Similarly, though, we shouldn't imagine that we have reached the summit of human potential in terms of uh, our, our growth. If we start to think that we needn't worry about um, growing anymore, then we will miss out on the many exciting things that we could be and do in the future with more rapid um, economic development. And that isn't simply a matter of doing more and more of the same thing. I think sometimes when we think about economic growth and we think of the arguments about why it doesn't matter and the reach, reaching of satisfaction, what we imagine probably is things like food and clothes. 
So we imagine I eat lots and lots of foods, and eventually I'm no longer hungry, and then at some point I get obese, and then I get really, really obese, and it was a bad idea to keep going. I add on more food, I add on more clothes, and at some point I've got enough, and then I shouldn't add on any more clothes. But actually, the vast majority of economic growth, um, of um, certainly economic growth in developed economies since the Second World War, has not taken the form of doing more and more of the same things. It isn't that we have 10 TVs now when we had one in the past. It isn't that we eat 10 times as much calories as we did in the past. What happens is that the economy grows because things that seemed in the past near impossible to do, we now do at relatively low cost. There will be many things in the future, economic growth in the future will consist of us doing things which are almost unimaginable to us now at relatively low costs that are accessible to most people. And if we, start, if we start to say, well, I'm content with the world as it is, I don't have any ambition, I don't want to go any further, I'll just stay here and focus upon distributional questions, focus upon um, these other kinds of things, which are important. But if you start to give up on the ambition to move forward, then you give up a lot. That's also connected with the point about finite resources. It just isn't true that because the planet's a certain size, therefore we have to give up on growth. Quite apart from the fact that we get most of our energy in from the sun, there's the question of the use of those resources becoming more and more efficient. Even in principle, one could imagine an enormous amount of time in which the use of those resources became more um, increased in its efficiency faster than the rate at which we use them up, allowing us to do more and more with less and less. And furthermore, as I said, we shouldn't assume we are limited by the resources of this planet alone. In the first instance, we get most of our stuff in from the sun. In due course, in centuries to come, we will doubtless go and do other kinds of, go to other planets as well. I don't see any reason why we should imagine we won't do that. Um, uh, uh, the, the one other thing that I will say here is about, that it, I don't accept that it is true that riches does not mean riches for the poor. The poorest people today are unimaginably wealthier than the poorest people in medieval times or the poorest people in most countries of the world uh, even today. But to the extent that it is true that there are more limited opportunities for the poor than there are for the wealthier, economic policy is not the right instrument to address that. The way of doing those things is through education, through philanthropy, uh, through um, uh, the freeing of markets, through encouraging travel and the encountering of new ideas. There are many other things that we can do that aren't economic policy. Going back to my continuing theme, we should be humble with what we think that economic policy can achieve and we should focus that on the things that it can achieve best. Great. Um, I think I'm going to turn, if I may, to the summing up given our time position. So I will, if you, would you like a moment while someone else speaks? Yes. Andy, do you mind doing the summing up first? Can you cope with that? Since he's just finished answering? I guess I'll have to. It's probably bad form for me. So I'll, I'll, I'll speak if you No, agree. I'll go. Come on. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, I have two minutes. Thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you for not asking questions about Scotland. That was my main aim <laughs> this evening. I hope the vote is, is uh, not as close tonight as it might be tomorrow. Um, the, um, 
let me thank Andrew as well. He's definitely had the harder part of this. I mean, I, I was um, delighted, Andrew, that you took the, uh, <laughs> you got the shorter straw. Um, and Andrew made the, the very important point about policy uh, being humble and policymakers being humble, and that is, um, uh, that must be uh, absolutely uh, spot on. Um, the, uh, let me close, actually not with my own words, but with someone else's. Um, because I, I don't think I could capture um, the essence of what I've been arguing tonight any better than um, Bobby Kennedy back in 1968, um, which you may have seen requoted actually last night by Anthony Hilton in the Evening Standard. Um, GDP measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. Uh, and um, why wouldn't one remotely to go as far as to say that GDP is unimportant today or indeed will be unimportant tomorrow, it does miss out a great many and indeed increasing numbers of the things that make life worthwhile, that make societies tick, and which therefore ought to be the focus of policymakers like me in the period ahead. Thank you all for listening. It is absolutely true that economic growth is not the only thing that matters. Uh, neither is it um, the neither is it disputed, I think, that policy of various sorts can affect things other than economic growth. But economic growth does grant us the resources and the freedom to do lots of other valuable things. A person who is poor is going to face different stresses upon their family conditions. A person who is poor is going to have less resources to help the sick and the old. A person who is poor is going to be more vulnerable to lots of threats from uh, foreign powers, from climate change, from uh, natural disasters, from economic, changing economic circumstances. Increasing your wealth, increase, increased economic growth, is very important to many people around the world today. I think that it is the, uh, it, we should not scoff at it at all. It's the luxury of the wealthy to scoff at it, and it risks missing opportunities. And if we promote economic growth, humbly using economic policy as our main tool for doing that, then I believe that we promote not only prosperity, but also our security and our geopolitical influence. It is a disciplining factor upon governments in meeting their core duties. It reduces the chance that governments do harm, and it also forces governments to think about the long-term impacts, uh, the moral consequences of their policies upon those that are not seen, as well as those that are. Terrific. And now we come to the final test of the evening. Uh, we're going to do this by a show of hands. So would those of you, and you should really only vote once, all right? Can I be clear about that? Um, I mean, I know many of you are very even-handed folks, but you must only use one of them. Um, 
could I have those uh, who would vote for the motion that economic growth should be the primary focus of economic policy raise their hands? Maybe it's close to Scotland. <laughs> okay. I'm not counting, it's just a show of hands. And could I have those raise their hands who would vote against the motion that economic growth should be the primary focus? Well, I think the against have it, but it's closer than, I don't know if it's closer than Scotland will be tomorrow, but it is definitely closer than I expected it to be. Uh, what I do think we can all agree on is the impressive agility of mind and argument of both of our speakers. Um, I wouldn't have wanted to be in either of their positions and was much more comfortable standing in the middle. Uh, so could we please all thank both our speakers for a lively and interesting debate.